Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is the Court Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, John Paul is back after his break. So he's back taking your calls nice and refreshed. 0818 103 103. If you want to share anything with John Paul for the programme this morning, you can text her WhatsApp as well to 086 103 103. I can confirm to you that at some stage on the programme between now and one o'clock, I will be playing two Elton John songs back to back, two hits from Elton John. When you hear them, when we play the second one, it'll be your opportunity to text our WhatsApp. But please don't text our WhatsApp before we play the second song because your text, your WhatsApp won't go forward to the draw. We'll make a draw on the programme. I'll have a quick chat with somebody uh, to find out how much they'd like to go along and see Elton John, not once but twice, Anfield in Liverpool on the 17th of June and then Porky Creeve in Cork on the 1st of July. There's flights, there's air, there's a transport from the airport, there's hotel accommodation. You get two nights actually in uh, Liverpool and a three-course dinner with some drinks thrown in on one of of the nights that's all to celebrate the rocket man and he is saying goodbye and you can experience Elton John twice with Blackpool shopping district no gimmicks no notions no pay parking just shopping it's what they do a best so at some stage between now and one you'll hear the two Elton John tracks we will also be looking for a qualifier for our Sky Shop competition as of yesterday. Cork's first ever Sky Shop opened on the ground floor at Mahan Point Shopping Centre. As I've been doing all week, I'll play a clip of a show from the Sky Store. Two possible answers. You've got a text or WhatsApp, the correct answer to be today's qualifier. And then tomorrow on the programme, we will announce the overall winner, which is a home cinema package uh, valued at €2,000. It's got a projector. It's got a projector screen, home cinema, sound system and €100 in Sky store voucher so you can check out all the latest movies on uh, Sky. We'll be doing that later on as well. 0818 103 103. Now we know that the government is really facing a bit of a crisis when it comes to the housing of Ukrainian refugees and actually I was reading 
earlier this week in the paper that the, the, the government are actually looking at an old psychiatric hospital. It's a 200-year-old psychiatric hospital that's actually closed at the moment in Dublin. It's the old uh, Gormanstown uh, Hospital, the St. Brendan Psychiatric Hospital. They're looking at that hospital as a last resort for housing Ukrainian refugees. Now, bear in mind that Gorman's, uh, Grange Gorman Hospital in Dublin closed down in 2013 and it closed at the time uh, because of what was described as inhumane conditions so that and it it had been deemed inhumane in 2010 so it took another three years before the last patient finally left and it's now been revealed that the government are looking at that building now they are saying it would be a last resort if they run out of all options but I'm assuming that if it's been closed that long and if at the time of closure it was deemed to be inhumane conditions and it was a very old building. A lot of work will be need, need to be done. But anyway, they're using it, as, a, as I say, they're putting it on ice as a last resort. I know uh, earlier on in the week there was a number of refugees were actually transported to a hostel on Aaron Moore Island off Donegal. So we know that the government are very quickly running out of spaces for uh, refugees. And I came... Uh, My attention was drawn to a story yesterday evening of an American gentleman who is coming to Cork. Uh, and he's going to, while he's here, he's going to be tracing his uh, family roots. So he's his flight spoke, and I don't know who he's travelling with. I'm assuming he's probably maybe travelling with his wife. I don't know if there's other family members or not. But he's booked into various B&Bs and hotels around the country. I take it he's probably, maybe he's touring around, but he's certainly coming uh, to us here in Cork. And he said he, he reached out to a local organisation because he said he's been un- unable to confirm the reservation that he has with a local B&B. He said he's made phone calls, he's emailed, he's contacted them on Facebook Messenger, he's tried to go on web chat and it's produced no results. Nobody is getting back to, back to him. So he was trying to find out perhaps the B&B has closed down for some reason because obviously he's hearing things aren't great in Ireland and he's been hearing about staff shortages and there has been closures. There has been closures due to the pandemic and some businesses have never reopened after the lockdowns. So he was getting a bit worried because, you know, obviously he's a gentleman who has trying to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and making sure everything is perfect for this his dream trip to uh, Ireland. And he was starting to panic when he couldn't get through to this particular B&B. Now, it turns out the B&B that he had booked with is currently housing refugees from Ukraine. But what struck me was if they are planning to remain housing refugees throughout the, uh, the summer months, wouldn't you think that they would be at least contacting people who have bookings with them to say sorry we can no longer honour that booking because we have already heard from people who were booked into hotels and to B&Bs who got a phone call or an email from the establishment to say sorry we have to cancel your booking because we have Ukrainian refugees staying with us so we can no longer honour your booking. But And I do know that some hotels and B&Bs who are offering accommodation to refugees are only doing it until June. And then what they are planning on doing is honouring the summer bookings that they already have in uh, place. Now, some obviously will stay accommodating refugees because I know it's one of the problems that the government have because 33% of contracts with hotels to house Ukrainian refugees are going to expire at the end of next month. 
and many of those will opt then to go down the tourist route instead and that's obviously going to be a real problem then for the government as to where the refugees who are currently staying there will be will be will be um, housed but when I heard about this particular story now this gentleman who's reached out he since has managed to get a B&B somewhere else but I'm wondering what would have happened if he hadn't reached out, if he had just assumed, oh, well, I've made my booking. A lot of people, once they've made their booking, not everybody goes and checks to make sure that everything's OK with the booking. What would have happened if he had arrived into Shannon Airport? The price of the hired car would be the next thing to shock him, I have to say. And he arrived at the B&B to be told, oh, sorry, no, uh, no room at the inn for you because we are completely full. And I'm just fearful that is that going to happen with other B&Bs and hotels. Now we are we're not naming the B&B at the moment because we are attempting to reach out to them to try to find out what exactly is happening with their summer bookings and are they are are they intending to contact people to say we're cancelling your booking and if they are how much notice are they going to give the people to say we're cancelling your booking because cancelling a booking 48 hours before somebody is due to arrive in the height of the summer is not going to be of much use to somebody travelling from overseas because we know there's a shortage of hotel accommodation because of the refugee uh, crisis and also because all hotels and B&Bs are not operating at full capacity because many are having problems with staff shortages. I'm hoping this is absolutely just an isolated case because this could really, really affect the tourism industry going forward if we end up hearing more stories like that. Yesterday I was talking about some of what has been discussed with regard to the budget which will be announced in October and it will be the budget for 2023. And a number of people were saying that what has been now been discussed, people were saying, what about cost of living? There's nothing in there for cost of living and so many people... Uh, texted and called us to say anything Patricia has just spoken about doesn't in any way affect me because it was to do with young children and childcare or it was to do with families who had students in going into third level or it was to do with public transport and people were saying of no use to me any of those benefits that would be introduced in the budget what about the cost of living well yesterday Heather Humphreys our social protection minister said that there should be no one in this country who cannot afford to put put bread on the table and who cannot afford to feed their uh, family. But she then went on to refuse to commit to any further cost of living uh, supports. She said, now she did understand that there are householders and families who are struggling and that they are particularly struggling with the cost in, with the rise in the cost of living. But her answer to it was, she said to those families, reach out go to your local community welfare officer that help is available. The government so far has refused to confirm whether it will bring in further measures to try to help alleviate the financial pressure on families and householders and they've refused to say whether they'll do anything before next October because so many people again when we start to talk about the October what gets announced in the October budget but of course the October budget is for next year so a lot of the announcements will be made but particularly increases they won't come in until 2023 and a number of people contacting us saying we need the help now and even wasn't it during the week we heard from one uh, old age pensioner who was saying that they have to make the decision between putting petrol in the car and whether to buy food for breakfast and I know that particular comment that came in from a listener 
upset so many people to think, God, you know, what kind of a country are we for older people that we have somebody listening to this programme who's making the decision, do I put a bit of petrol in, into the car so that I can get wherever I need to get or will I buy food so that I can have breakfast uh, tomorrow morning? Now, the Taunishta, uh, Leo Varadkar, revealed that the government is working. This is what I had been mentioning. Uh, he said they're working on proposals that are going to target the rising cost of childcare and the cost of public uh, trans- transport. Now, he did also say there are areas in the cost of living crisis where the government can do more. He did accept that, but he was particularly focusing on childcare and public transport. And that's what annoyed some of our listeners saying, you know, even if he does move mountains in reducing the cost of childcare and if he does keep the cost of public transport lower that's not going to help a number of other families. Uh, Heather Humphrey says she will speak to all the stakeholders next month about how the government can target those and accepts that those who are most in need and those who are most in need are the ones who are using her service through social protection because that's where social welfare gets paid out of and she said she's very aware as the Minister for Social Protection how people are struggling and she said she will try to look for more uh, supports and she will hopefully in the budget try to target those who are most in need but that's what she went on to say for people who today are finding themselves in real real difficult circumstances she said we have an urgent needs payment. There's a state's safety net for anyone that finds themselves in difficulty and that's where she she made that comment. There shouldn't be anybody in this country who can't afford to put bread on the table and she went on to talk about every area has a local community welfare office and she said she wants to get that message out to people. Reach out, go to the local community welfare office and help will be available for you. The government has come under pressure to bring in more measures to try to help people who are struggling, particularly with that one, the high cost of food. We do have a high cost of transport and it's just the general day-to-day living expenses. Now, she also went on to note that €2 billion has been invested in supports since February. So, you know, she's accepting that the government aren't sitting back and doing nothing. But many will say more needs to be done. So that's the answer to somebody like that pensioner who contacted us, who's making the decision between filling up the car and putting food on the table. Community welfare officer. I don't know how many people have gone down that route and reached out to the local community welfare officer. And if they did, how did they get on? 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. According to a policy briefing paper from Social Justice Ireland, the state's response to the Ukrainian crisis has included a heavy reliance on the community and the voluntary sector. To discuss the paper on Ireland's response to the Ukrainian crisis, I'm joined by Colette Bennett, who the Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Good morning to you, Colette. Good morning, Patricia. And you're, you're welcome to the programme. Do you believe Ireland's response to the Ukrainian refugees has been the right one? Absolutely. I mean, the, re- the framework for the response has been the right one. I'll just kind of clarify that, I suppose. Um, because what it is, is a human rights first approach. So what we've seen under the Temporary Protection Directive is that all member states in the EU have to provide these type of supports. And the supports that Ireland are providing are accommodation provisions. So we've seen a huge amount of pledges. Now, I know that not all of those pledges 
came about. But, you know, very early on, we saw 20,000 pledges of accommodation for refugees from Ukraine. We saw PPS numbers being handed out in the airport. We saw welfare supports that's just slightly under the, the core social welfare rate. <laughs> Excuse me. We saw labour supports for those who can and are willing to access the labour market, including um, self-employment supports and training. We saw educational supports for very, very young, kind of early years education, all the way through primary school and all the way up to further education and training and higher education. And we saw healthcare support, so the provision of medical cards and additional supports around mental health care. So for those who may be suffering PTSD or have psychological stress, there are additional supports there. So all of that has been a huge improvement in what we have seen up until now. And it has to be noted, the temporary protective protection directive that brought all of this into being was actually passed in, at a, an EU level in 2001, but only put into place for the very, very first time in response to the Ukrainian crisis in March of this year. So it wasn't put in place for Afghanistan, for Iraq, for Palestine, for any of the other um, disasters or persecutions that we have seen. It's only been in response to the Ukraine. So and why? Still... why do you believe that is? Um, well, I think it is, it's quite telling the narrative that came about with, from politicians and from some state broadcasters where we heard, you know, these aren't the usual refugees. These are people who are just like us. And if that is the case, if that's the reason for invoking this as a policy response or for, you know, having that flood of that offering of, of generosity and goodwill on a societal level, then there really needs to be some serious reflection on what that means. Um, because, you know, we still have 8,500 people as at the beginning of this year languishing in direct provision. Mm. 2,000 of those are in emergency accommodation or, you know, initial reception centres. So notwithstanding the fact that there was a government white paper published last year to eliminate direct provision by 2024, 2,000 people who have just entered into the system are still going through the processes, the kind of old processes that we know and government has admitted are not fit for purpose. And because so much reliance has been placed on the voluntary and community sector, do many of them need more support, Gillette? Absolutely, Patricia. So, you know, the community and voluntary sector have stepped up to the plate once again. They did it in COVID and they do it to fill all of the service provision gaps that, that we see in society that really should be part of kind of the overall social contract with government. Um, but certainly in this instance, we have seen that they were the ones that immediately amplified the issue around safeguarding for unaccompanied minors um, and got some action in relation to putting in protections. They're still doing that for organisations who are matching, unofficially matching Ukrainian families and Irish families. Because again, while there's a huge well-intentioned um, response behind all of that, there, if, if they don't have the necessary safeguarding protocols put in place, there are huge opportunities for risk. But we're, they're doing all of that on a shoestring budget. Mm. There were cuts made by government following the 2008 crash that have not been fully restored. And yet the community and voluntary sector are doing far more with less resources. They were phenomenal in response to the two years during the pandemic with the community call in every local authority area. They're, they're stepping up to the plate again for the Ukrainian crisis. But unfortunately, they're doing it with very, very few resources. And that is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's not fair. And, and you would just fear, will there be fatigue and donor fatigue? And how long will they be able to keep up those supports? 
Yeah, I mean, that is an absolute risk in terms of, you know, trying to to constantly fundraise for this. So we saw during the pandemic that there was a 50% fundraising drop uh, because people just, you know, they, they weren't putting the money towards the charity and, and, you know, the community and voluntary sector. So they experienced a huge, a huge fundraising issue. And now we're seeing, you know, we, we, have, we still have a housing crisis. We still have a healthcare crisis. We have an education crisis, particularly around SNAs. We have a mental health crisis. Um, and we have all of this that the community and voluntary sector are trying to address. They're desperately seeking fundraising. And as you say, there is that real risk of donor fatigue. Do you worry about accommodation needs for Ukrainian migrants? Uh, I mean, are going forward. I mean, we're already running out of space. I mean, I mentioned uh, earlier a piece I, I saw on the paper uh, during the week of, you know, the government looking at the old psychiatric hospital in, in Grange Gorman. Now they're saying as a last resort. Uh, are we, are we, we have a housing crisis in this country? Yeah, I'm, I would be very worried and we on the Migration Roundtable would be very concerned about the accommodation piece there for a number of reasons. So very early on there was what some people have called a sugar rush. So people were pledging accommodation, they were pledging spare rooms, they were pledging holiday homes and all, all of those things. We had ministers pledging their own accommodation. Um, we had hoteliers and, and owners of bed and breakfast pledging, pledging accommodation. Then we saw the reality hit and we saw very public retractions of accommodation by certain ministers. And then we saw that the kind of travel sector or the tourism sector say, well, you know, that was just for a very, very temporary time. Now we're coming into the summer. We need to, to free up these beds because the perception was that this was going to be so temporary that it will be sorted between May, March and June of this year, which was just completely unrealistic. In terms of operating things like community centres, and the old psychiatric hospital and, and essentially more warehousing, um, we would be very concerned. We'd be very concerned because of the very gendered nature of this migration. So most of the, the men who are fit and healthy and well enough had stayed behind to fight in a war. So what you're seeing is predominantly women and children and older people and people who are unable to fight or unable to work due to a long-standing health condition. Um, and they're the ones that are coming over. But they need to be protected in terms of the, the accommodation that they are in. They need to have appropriate accommodation. They need to have appropriate access to bathrooms and washing facilities and, and those kind of of standard things that you would expect um, because that is what will protect them, that will protect children, that will protect women um, and, and, and older people and vulnerable people um, from possible safeguarding risks. So certainly we need to, to do more in that space. Um, and as you rightly point out, we already had a housing and homelessness crisis. There are 260,000 people in Ireland in need of social housing. There are officially roughly 10,000 people who are accessing emergency homeless accommodation. And had government invested in the infrastructure that was needed and actually built more public, more social homes and actual real affordable housing, we would be in a much better position now to actually address this, this crisis coming in. Yeah, and of course, none of us have a crystal ball. Nobody knows how long the Ukrainians will remain with us. We, the one thing we do know is the majority of them want to go home as quick as, as possible, but nobody knows when going home safely is going to happen. So do we now need to focus on integration into local communities? I mean, that's got to be vital. Yes, it 
absolutely is vital. And again, the community and voluntary sector has really stepped up to the plate in, in doing that kind of thing. I mean, I know myself, our own GAA club, um, we had a, a kind of a hosting and we have Ukrainians on the team now. And, you know, there, there is that real kind of draw for community spirit to engage with people. Um, but certainly, you know, that whole idea that this is a temporary issue is a, a grave risk because even the, the directive itself, it provides that it is a temporary protection directive. One year worth of support that can be renewed for another year and then following a, a kind of a bureaucratic process at EU level with, with permissions with member states, it can be renewed for another year to a maximum of three years. Realistically, many of these homes and these cities in Ukraine have been razed to the ground so even if that war finished today, they would be unlikely to be returning home en masse anyway uh, within the next three years. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're so right. You're, you're, many of them have no homes uh, to go back to. And actually, it's interesting when we're talking about it, David and Glamire is just listening uh, to us. This is a typical example of that community and voluntary sector who are helping. Uh, he just said, just as an add-on to our interview, they are making a collection for shoes, clothes and baby items. This is for refugees who are in the Glamire er- area. They're particularly looking for teenage clothes. Sarsfield's GAA club tomorrow, or Saturday between half 10 and half 12 if anybody can help. Okay, and we'll mention that again later on. Listen, Colette, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining thanks us so on much. the programme. Good morning to you. Uh, that thank is uh, Colette uh, Bennett, who is um, Economic and Social Analyst with the Social Justice Ireland. 0818-103-103. You can text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Now, Drink Aware, the national charity working to prevent and reduce the misuse of alcohol and delay the age of first drink, is encouraging. Is, or sorry, is engaging with parents with tips and advice on how to talk to their children about alcohol. To find out more, I'm joined by Jennifer Flynn, who is Communications Director with Drink Aware. Good morning to you, Jennifer. Good morning, Patricia. Thanks for having me on. You're more than welcome. Are parents the most powerful influence when it comes to children's attitude around alcohol and drinking? Absolutely. So I think a lot of parents would be surprised by that. Um, But research does consistently show that although what influences a child might change as they grow older, parents are the most powerful influence on their children's future um, attitudes and behaviours, especially with regards to alcohol. And in 2016, we asked students, um, junior cycle students, through behaviour and attitudes with a survey who they found was the leading source for information about alcohol. And parents came in first at 95% and then teachers were a close second at 86 So we know alcohol education in schools is really important, but we also know that parents are who students and young people are looking to for that information. So with the summer months coming up, we decided it was timely to roll out a digital campaign specifically for parents with information about how to talk to young people about alcohol. And I'm right in saying it's a myth that if you allow your teenager to drink at home that they'll be less likely to drink outside of the home. See, this is one of the things, Patricia, there's so many myths and misconceptions out there around alcohol, young people and underage drinking. So one of the most common uh, myths 
would be if I allow my teenagers to drink at home, they'll be less likely to drink outside the home. But the research is coming back showing that supplying alcohol under parental supervision can actually have the opposite effect. So really, you know, this campaign isn't about kind of telling people how to raise their children or dictating how a person speaks to their child about alcohol. It's about providing support and information. But I think a lot of parents out there would think, you know, oh, well, if I provide alcohol in the house and let them have, you know, a few, a small amount of drinks, they're less likely to drink outside the home. But that's just not true. Yeah, yeah. I think some parents will be really surprised uh, to hear that. And at what age as parents, should we start to talk to children about alcohol? Really from, you know, as young as possible, you as a parent yourself know your child the best, so you know what kind of conversations are appropriate for your child. But as a young person growing up, you, you know, alcohol is part of society, it's part of life. If you're walking through your local town or village or you're, you know, walking through a city, there are pubs there, there's alcohol in restaurants, you know, and it can be a social completely okay, comfortable, you know, activity for people to engage in. So really um, what the research shows is that by the age of five, children have already started to form some basic attitudes about alcohol. So how you treat alcohol in the home and outside of the home as a parent will influence those opinions. Yeah, I remember actually a friend of mine being absolutely mortified when her little girl who was probably three and a half heading up for four it was her first year in preschool and mm. when it came to sort of you know break time they were all asked what, what would they like to drink and her daughter said uh, G&T uh, oh. I, I, snow, uh, I snow lemon and she said she was mortified when she went yeah. to pick up the t- when she went to pick up the, the, the little girl and obviously she, she said she didn't even realise that her daughter would have heard her order that drink but obviously she had heard her order the drink when she was out you know the family yeah. meal the Sunday lunch yeah. or whatever but at, at that young age it had seeped in it actually yeah. actually seeped in okay in an ideal world would you say no alcohol before the age of 18 oh absolutely alcohol has no place in childhood and young people are developing and they you know are you know their resilience might not be as up to kind of you know an adult standard and the legal age for drinking alcohol in Ireland is 18 years and alcohol should not be part of a child's life and um, would be what we would say but you do have to understand that alcohol is out there in society and you know it can be enjoyed as a, a social a social activity but for young people what's critical is that they that you have the conversation with them, you talk about peer pressure, you talk about situations that could come up, you don't wait for an incident to occur, you have the conversation beforehand, you let the young people know what your expectations are around alcohol and what your boundaries are so that they're fully aware of um, what you expect from them and they can be honest back with you and, you know, always with these kind of conversations. You know, you don't want it to be a lecture. You want it to be a conversation. Choose the right location. You know, make sure people are comfortable. But it is really important to have these conversations. They can be difficult. They can be challenging. And that's why we wanted to come out with some 
support for for parents with information about how they might be able to start these conversations. Okay, and Matthew, one of our listeners is, is saying, does your expert, our expert is uh, Jennifer Flynn, who is Communications Director with Drink Aware. Uh, does uh, Jennifer worry about the amount of home drinking that's going on, especially during the pandemic? People have gotten into the habit of home drinking and surely that's what children are now seeing much more of than ever before. Definitely. So, you know, even prior to the pandemic, we were seeing increases in at-home drinking. We actually did a research study on it and people said, you know, it's more convenient, it's more cost-effective. You know, there were loads of pros people saw to to having a few drinks at home rather than going out to to a pub or a restaurant. Um, and then, yet the pandemic came and children were seeing alcohol more within the home because there was nowhere to go, mm. really. And, you know, there's no blame here with with people. You know, it was a very challenging two years. But having alcohol around the house or, you know, simple comments like, oh, that was a stressful day, I'm going to have a beer or a glass of wine. Those kind of comments do seep in to children. And then children think, oh, okay, so alcohol is used when you feel stressed or alcohol is used when you feel sad. Whereas, you know, your motivations around alcohol shouldn't be for coping. And we are seeing in higher incidences of people using alcohol to cope since the pandemic started. Yeah, and, and children learn by example. So parents really need to look at their own drinking habits before sitting down and give any, giving any advice to children. Yeah, and just, you know, make sure you have the, the right information. So like how many standard drinks is binge drinking, is risky drinking, what are the low risk weekly guidelines that the HSC recommends and what is binge drinking? How many standard drinks would you be having? What, do you, what is a standard drink? Only 2% of Irish adults know what the HSC low risk weekly guidelines are. So before you have the conversation, it's always a good idea to get your head around some of the basic facts and information yourself. Uh, we have all of that up on the website and we have parents' resources that you can order and will be delivered straight to your front door for free. That, you know, you can order resources for talking to your children, but for anyone out there without children, you can order resources just to get the information yourself. And it talks about the health harms, but mental health as well. So just for people to be very mindful of the impact that alcohol can have um, and also just so that they have that basic information so that when they go to talk to a young person, they can say, you know, you had three pints of beer on your, your 18th birthday. That's binge drinking. Mm, you know, okay. let them know that that's risky drinking and, you know, the harms that are associated with that so that you, you know, you have the information there to feel confident in having that conversation. OK, and the Parents Hub can be accessed just on, on your website? Yep, just type in drinkaware.ie and up at the top you'll see parents and loads and loads of information in there. Um, it goes through different things about building resilience, how to have the conversation, some activities that you can go through, how to set the right example, and as well things to look out for, things that you might notice in your child if their sleeping habits have changed, if their eating habits have changed, if they're hanging out with a new group of friends and you haven't met them. Those kind of things to look out for. You know, in case you are concerned that your child might be engaging in underage drinking. And then we have our tools and resources section. So you'll find all of our booklets, our measuring cups for parents and for for individual adults as well on there. And you can just put an order through and we'll send them out to you. Okay, well done. Well done. All right, Jennifer. Listen, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. 
No problem. Thanks for having Good me on. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Jennifer Flynn there, Communications Director with Drink Aware and drinkaware.ie if you want to find out more, particularly uh, from their parents' hub section. If you want to find out more about talking, it's, it's talking to your young people about drinking alcohol. Not at times it won't be the easiest of conversations to have for sure. Joan Kilmalik says, why don't they ban drink advertising at certain times like they've done with cigarettes? Well, there are restrictions around when you can actually broadcast our show uh, drink ads. But I, I take it you would want a total ban like they did with uh, cigarettes. Thanks, Joe. Imelda says, I feel that when their friends start going to the local teenage disco or other similar events that's when the drinking starts but it says not necessarily inside in the hall with the teenage disco it's on it's before and after the event education them is all well and good but when they're out with their friends that's when the wild side will come out and it's hard to deal with them after that Kay says I feel young people today are different to those of 20 years ago we would have a gap she says in our family of nearly 20 years and I've noticed that the younger generation they're more into going to the gym and sports than uh, drinking however the problem, Kay says, is if they may not be drinking, but there's a huge problem with drugs at the moment. And that's something that needs to be dealt with. And that is way worse than drinking alcohol. And Tom in Bantry on underage drinking says, my mother used to always say to me when I was younger, one drink is good, two is enough and three is too many. I don't think we carried out that thought, though, when we were younger, says Tom. Thanks for that. Some of your thoughts coming in on young people and drinking. 0818 103 103. A break and news at 11 on the way. Court today on C103. Which John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Competition time celebrating all this week because Cork's first Sky Shop opened yesterday on the ground floor at the Mahon Point Shopping Centre and tomorrow we will have one lucky listener winning the ultimate home cinema package worth €2,000. There's a projector, a projector screen, home cinema sound system and also €100 in Sky Store vouchers so you can check out all the latest movies on Sky. We have a clip of a show from the Sky Store to play for you. Let's take a listen to today's... Honestly, I know everyone wants to go home, but I'm really struggling. Are you really? Huh? Are you really? Yeah, can you do it? No, well, I, mean, I, can, I can jump to my death, yeah. OK, now that is a show from the Sky Store. It is either A, Breeders, or B, A League of Their Own. So A, Breeders, or B, A League of Their Own. If you can correctly identify the name of that show, I need you to text and WhatsApp now to 0862103103. Honestly, I know everyone wants to go home, but I'm really struggling. Are you really? Huh? Are you really? Yeah, can you do it? No, well, I, mean, I, can, I can jump to my death, yeah. OK, let's leave the text message and the WhatsApp open for about 10 minutes. We'll go through all of the correct answers and then we will select our qualifier for today. So, A, breeders 
or B, a league of their own. And we need you to text or WhatsApp the correct answer along with your name and address. Get texting on that, please. 0862 103 103 to be today's qualifier to win that wonderful home cinema package to celebrate the fact that the first ever Sky Shop is now open on the ground floor at the Mahon Point Shopping Centre. And while we're waiting for our qualifier, let me take a look at some of your thoughts coming into the programme. We were talking about alcohol and how do we educate young people and the role that parents play in educating young people about alcohol and responsible drinking. And I think I certainly was surprised when I was looking into it yesterday when I was on the Drink Aware uh, webs- website. I certainly was unaware that that was a myth that if you in, if you give young people a drink, you know, I'm talking about 16, 17 glass of wine at Christmas can of beer if there's a family celebration going on and I was always of the belief that if we did that at home with our teenagers we'd be educating them so that when they when they went out they wouldn't be drinking as much outside but the evidence is there that that is not the case we are fooling ourselves as parents if we believe by giving young people under the age of 18 alcohol in what we see is supervised and it is supervised you're not going to allow them to get rip roaringly drunk but if we believe we're doing the right thing by our children it seems we are not. Some of your thoughts coming in about uh, alcohol Mike says hi Patricia I agree with one of your previous texters Joe I think alcohol advertising on TV should be completely banned just like they banned cigarettes uh, ads many years ago that there's limits now on because I and I know we're governed by it here at the radio station there are set times on which you can broadcast and play out on TV alcohol ads and you know there's a watershed and you can't play them uh, before that but it's interesting that both Mike and Joe now feel it should be a total ban there's a total ban I mean once upon a time they were able to advertise cigarettes and the best cigarettes that were on sale and how cool cigarettes were and that seems so alien now but back in the day you'd switch on the TV and there would be cigarettes uh, ads on it and there'd be billboards uh, for cigarettes and I recently heard of people who were talking about remembering school trips you know when you used to go away on your school trip and it's wonderful to see the young people today and particularly now as we're slowly coming out of the pandemic you know school tours are organised and we all went off on day trips and all of us have memories when we were in primary school of you know your summer your school trip and the excitement and the build up to it and what a great day we had and I heard recently of somebody now I just I'm assuming that this would have happened back in in the 70s it was a school in Dublin and they went off as part of their school tour and they went to the Carol's cigarette factory to see how cigarettes were made and I imagine it was quite exciting for the young people to be inside in a big factory and watching the cigarettes being made and as they were leaving leaving, they were each given a gift of a little packet of cigarettes now not for themselves obviously to bring home but my God that would be alien today that you would even have your children anywhere near a cigarette factory but the very fact that you'd hand children a little sample pack of cigarettes to take away as a memento of their day touring the cigarette factory so times certainly have changed so people saying get rid of all of the drink advertisements thank you for that uh, Mike 
Hi Patricia. Young people, especially teenagers in and around the town where I live, drink mad and they're all using drugs. They've got no respect whatsoever for anybody else, not even themselves. They'll walk around with hurleys. I actually think that hurleys should be classed a dangerous weapon. They won't even get out of the way for anyone. And if you decide to say anything to them, their parents will come after you. They'll threaten you. I live near three teenagers and believe me, they are let get away with everything. They don't care. And the guards seem to be to do nothing about it um, what they need is a right good kick up the backside you're not allowed to do that you would get yourself in a whole host of trouble if you decided to do that and hi this is from D says hi I decided to give up alcohol two years ago I was doing it to try to understand my sister's struggle with it I have to admit giving up alcohol myself was a tough thing to do I did like my glass of uh, wine it was great to hear Jenna from from Drink Aware speak on your programme this morning that's what we need we need more awareness and more talk Uh, and awareness chats are needed for teenagers. We have an epidemic when it comes to teenage drinking. It seems to have become the norm. And yes, as somebody rightly pointed out, the teenage discos are a massive problem. Teenagers are sharing spirits, they're staying in friends' houses and they're all covering for each other. They think we came down with the last shower. I sound like I'm turning into the greatest party pooper ever, says D. You're not. You're not. We were all young once and when we wanted to make up stories of where we were going and not going and you are right teenagers uh, today in some ways are no different to the way we were as teenagers and how we tried to pull the wool over our parents uh, eyes and they think that they're being smart and getting away with it but if many of them are drinking then they are uh, getting away with it uh, thank you for your text uh, D Declan says hi Patricia I'm afraid it's a lost battle when it comes to underage drinking I think we lost that battle says De- Declan a long time ago I believe it should be a discussion it's discussions that are needed to be had in all of our schools. More worrying now is the access that the underage have to drugs. And so many people are pointing that out while drinking alcohol and binge drinking is bad. But a lot of people are worried about how easy it is. And by all accounts, it is very easy to get drugs, whether you'll ever get a young person to admit that to you. But it does seem to be getting much more easier every day to access hash or cocaine or and I even saw the piece on the news yesterday where they're warning young people about some of the drugs that are on the market at the moment some of the tablets that are on the market at the moment and people thinking that they're ecstasy tablets and they, they're actually much stronger and they're worried now with festivals and music festivals coming up because we know that they're associated with a lot of drug use and they're trying to get people young people to be just really careful and be really mindful of what they are accessing 0818 uh, 103 103 on cost of living and all of that and how people are struggling at the moment hi Patricia the government have certainly lost my vote they seem to have no consideration at all for the elderly they are and the workers who are travelling long distance it seems to be all about students at the end of the day students will get grants and they can study remotely if they need to there also seems to be huge benefits for parents with regard to childcare. Remember, it was the elderly who built this uh, country that we are living in today. And we need to be looking after our elderly people. And this listener feels that the government is not 
giving enough to the uh, elderly. Heidi says, Patricia, we have to look at the fuel prices. I know that a barrel of oil is now at $113. Oh God, and I remember the first time that the barrel of oil went over $100. They were saying, oh, it would never happen. And now it's, it's almost the norm, isn't it, at this stage? Anyway, that's what the barrel of oil currently is at the moment. So why all these hikes in, so why all these hikes in prices? Something is going on, Patricia, for sure. This really has to be looked into. The trouble, as I'm sure you would agree, is that what we voted for to run our country for the majority of us it wasn't the Green Party so when government are not listening to us we need to stand up and do something about it we need to be more like the French we need to get out and protest fuel is really a joke at these prices I passed a fuel station this morning two euro and five cent and I'll have to go back and check but I think it was two euro and five cent for the unleaded has unleaded now gone past diesel the diesel seemed to be just under kind of the 199 uh, mark I'll have to check it again but I'm sure it was the unleaded has gone uh, higher somebody else says Patricia breakfast or petrol in your car is a bit of a joke the man who texts in to say he has to, he has to decide between filling his car or get, having his breakfast there's lots of breakfast items available for a couple of euro and there's so many stores where that gentleman can choose from it really beats all to hear an old age pensioner saying that a person on a state pension can't be that be- badly off it is ridiculous well some people are great at managing and great at planning out their budget for the week and know how f- will know how far a, a bag of porridge will stretch and you know some people are really good at it others are not so good at it and then you also have to allow for something can go wrong that can be an emer- if you're living on a very tight budget and there's some kind of a, a financial emergency where you have to pay out for something that you hadn't factored in that then can throw no matter how good you are at your budgeting, that can throw the budget out completely. And maybe that's what the gentleman was talking about. Maybe, you know, a high electricity bill. And we all know high electricity bills are coming in. And every little bit that he had away for food and for petrol, all suddenly went on the electricity bill because he needs to keep the lights on over his head. You know, things like that can happen. So I'm always very slow. If somebody says in good faith says I have to make a decision between buying breakfast items and putting fuel in the car then I've no reason to doubt that they would be making uh, that up and it's all very easy to say they're living on a state pension which is well over 200 euro they should be able to manage some are well able to manage but not everybody is able to manage and able to go from week to week or month to month and then the minister saying to people that nobody should should be living without bread on the table and the simple answer is that you go to your local community welfare uh, officer and Heather Humphreys said yesterday she wants to get that message out to people that anybody out there is struggling that there is help available and you go to community welfare officer somebody wants to point out anybody on a pension or anybody who's living on social welfare will not get anything according to this listener from a social welfare officer what you get from social welfare is what you have to live on I don't know know where or what the minister is talking about it simply isn't true so I don't know if anybody else can back that up has anybody on living on social welfare ever had the need that they had to go to the local community welfare officer because they were stuck and how did you get on 0818 and Joan was on to us this is on a lost phone I take it that's Aldine Mallow is it um, John Paul thank you uh, to say she lost her phone she was at Aldi in Mallow was it this morning we're talking this morning are we talking yesterday we're talking 
talking Tuesday. On Tuesday, she lost her phone between 9.15 and 9.45. It was in a black case and it had numbers written on the inside of the case. So we need people that were shopping in Aldi on Tuesday morning in Mallow early, 9.15, 9.45. Some might be busy enough. The school drop-off is done at that stage. Some of the parents might have been doing the shopping. Somebody, I'm, I'm hoping, picked up that phone and said, oh, we'll try and find out who owns the phone and have taken it home with them to mind, mind it. If you have that phone, can you contact us and we can pass on Joan's number. She really is desperate to get her phone back. 0818 103 103. C103 Jobs. With Munster Technological University, enhance your career prospects with MTU's range of full-time, part-time and professional courses. So Succeeding together with mtu.ie. A sales and delivery person is required to join the TMAT, which is the Clonakilty Brewing Company. Contact Frank on clonbrew at gmail.com. Jones Agri, they're in Valley Desmond. They've got a vacancy for a yard person slash general operative for duties including tyre fitting, loading and up, or uploading deliveries and hydraulic hose assembly. Call Matthew at 87 2946881 a sous chef required for the West Cork Hotel email accounts at westcorkhotel.com and an admin assistant is required for the Cork Sexual Health Centre CVs to supervisor at cccg.ie you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is c103 court today on c103 with sean cusack insurances kinsale now part of mccarthy insurance group for motor home business farm life and cmig.ie Home care organisations based in local communities have called on the Minister for Health to clarify when they will receive the pandemic bonus payment, which of course is to be issued to frontline staff recognition for their work during the pandemic. Joining me is Fiercra Hensi, who is Chief Executive of the National Community Care Network, which represents not-for-profit care organisations that provide home care in the community. Good morning, Chief Fiercra. Good morning, Patricia, and thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome to, to the programme. Now, firstly, just to... It has been confirmed, hasn't it, that non-HSE yes. care frontline staff are to receive this payment? It has been confirmed that uh, any uh, carers that are basically under pay or contract with the HSE, which all our members are. Because uh, initially it was just for... The, the, the theory was it would just be HSE staff. It was, but we have sought clarification on that, and and we're getting dribs and drabs of uh, of clarification. But uh, my understanding now is that we will get it, we will get it. But my problem is when. And are you getting any sense or of a timeline for the payment? N- none whatsoever, Patricia. Unfortunately, I expect that there are other groups demanding the same thing. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but but I would. Uh, I would hope that we would get it fairly soon, simply because the the carers have had a tough old time, and it was a great gesture to offer the one thousand uh, pandemic payment. But it's taking the good out of it if if they delay and kick this down the road. Now, not all, but I'm right in saying that some HSE workers have already been paid the one thousand. That's euro. correct. Some have, yeah, but not all, yeah. They're in the process. 
Okay, so they've started the ball rolling to, to give Absolutely. out, to give out yes. um, um, the money. That's my understanding, yes. And you, what you're talking about are in the main people, home carers who went into people's homes. But the traditional home helps, I think, is the word a lot of people refer to them as. Yeah, well, the the home help term has, has kind of been left behind once the training and qualifications uh, standards, etc., were raised. But but it, yeah, absolutely. These are these people. A lot of these today's carers would have been traditional home helps. Um, and today, these, I mean, these are special. If if I might say, they, they are special people, um, and they're they're often the only contact point. And people, I think, people who don't encounter home care directly for their family or their loved ones or whatever, they don't fully, uh, I think, appreciate that very often the carer is the only contact person for people living alone. Like, they monitor that person's well-being. They might be contracted for a couple of hours of work, but if somebody is not well, very often, and I've personal experience of this, they will go back in in the evening just to check on so-and-so is okay and you know things like that, and they're not paid for that because it's it's a kind of a passion. It's a it, it's a real commitment, and I I just feel that if this payment isn't made, if it's kicked down the road, if it's not made in a timely fashion, the whole value of it, because it was seen as a recognition and a, an acknowledgement and appreciation for the role these people played, particularly during the pandemic. Yeah, it's taking the good out of it for sure. It is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and I know, Freaker, during, you're right in what you say because certainly during the pandemic and during the early days when the famous cocooning word was being uh, used, yes. which I know a lot of older people were very offended by, but we would have heard from numerous elderly people who told us that the only person they are seeing every day is the the home care worker who is coming in and and you're right they went above and beyond because suddenly these people couldn't have anybody else into their into their homes so many of those home care workers were doing additional work that as you say that they weren't paid for and that isn't even under their terms and conditions you know making sure that there was food in the table make you know making Absolutely. sure that they, they had dinners you know and so they really did go uh, above above and beyond and um is the payment to be made to every home care worker who worked during the pandemic or is it only for people who came in contact with COVID? No, it, it, the, my understanding is, is that for frontline workers, because frankly speaking, all carers were exposed to the COVID virus. All of them were. Like, like the, the, the unfortunate thing was that uh, carers were going into households actually not knowing whether... COVID existed in that household with that client or that family. So so all the time they were at risk. And I think what's not fully appreciated, not only were they at risk going into that house of the client, and most carers would have several clients in a day, they were actually going back to their own houses then and exposing their families. Mm-hmm. And yet they continued to do it because I think they work, they work with a passion. It's, it's Money doesn't really enter into this equation right now in, in, in this context. They are, they are, it's like a vocation. And, and, and they, it's about respect and recognition. And I think that's what the, the, the pandemic payment 
was seen as acknowledging their role, their exposure, their commitment, their passion. And and like like a lot of the carers going into households, or all of them basically, they are trusted. They're they're allowed to go into somebody's private dwelling and trusted. And there's a compassion, there's an understanding. And and I, and I think that needs to be recognised. Or, or or the whole system of home care, home support, that's going to be undermined because. As, I, as I've said many times now, the most critical issue in sustaining home care is around recruitment yeah. and retention of carers. Yeah. And if the carers are gone, like if you think during the pandemic, the the reason that hospitals were able to discharge people back into the community when they were deemed safe to do so was because you had carers uh, very many times there to welcome those people back into their homes. And making sure that that person is safe. And, and, absolutely, and did, absolutely. Did many home care workers contract COVID, do you believe, while going about their job? Absolutely. We, well, I can't say for sure whether they contracted it, we'll say, in their private uh, environment or private life or on the job. I think it's very hard to prove one way or the other where you contracted COVID. But, but I do know, for instance, at, at a peak... We had about 200, 240 carers who had COVID and they were taken out of the equation until they were cleared to return to work. Mm. But that's, that's a fairly small number when you think we have 3,000 across the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they, so, they, so they, they, they were being really careful because they knew the vulnerability of the people that they were going in to see every day. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 they they adhered to the rules and regulations. When when whoever was on Tony Hullen or whoever was on the airways saying, you know, wear your PPE, be properly prepared, be trained in what to do, do it properly. All these carers they bought into that because they they were committed to the care of the person they were looking after. And also, Fiacra, when you look at all of the frontline workers and every single frontline worker is deserving of this €1,000 pandemic bonus payment, I think everybody accepts that. But when you when you look at the cohort who are going to be paid this money, the group you are representing are the lowest paid salary-wise, let's be honest. I, I think of, of the ones that have been identified, yeah, I think they probably are. Now, in fairness to the members of NCCN, because they're non-profit, they, they actually direct more money towards the carer. So so carers uh, frequently would be in receipt of whatever, 13 to 15. That would be the kind of band, the general band, uh, on an hourly basis with additional money uh, at weekends or after 7pm, etc. OK, well, so that's good to hear. That's it certainly, is, that yeah, certainly I think is, it's very is important. OK, and then just talk to me, as because we, uh, we touched on it, the problem with recruiting and retaining carers. What What uh, is, there certainly isn't a simple, a simple solution, but what are possible solutions to this going forward? I, I think uh, we have highlighted that this is the most critical issue in sustaining the service. And we've been doing this for several years. And and, and right now, there is a strategic uh, workforce committee established by Minister Butler, who basically are tasked with, with coming up with ideas and solutions to address 
recruitment and retention of carers. I, th I think from the outset, it's not all money. There is a need to have uh, a public uh, recognition and a respect for the role of the carer. Everybody likes to be appreciated. So that that is that's coming in now, and I think the COVID time uh, reinforced that. There is a need for the terms and conditions of employment to mimic what the statutory, we'll say the, the ones directly employed by the HSE. There is a need to remove the disparity because after all, they're doing the same work and they're funded by the same money. So, so why not remove that disparity? And and this is being discussed at a high level, and hopefully, hopefully, it will get some attention okay. and action. Good to hear. And in the meantime, hopefully, the powers that be, whatever is causing the delay, I don't know what it is, but hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, all of the home care workers will receive their long, long overdue pandemic bonus payment. In the meantime, Fiacre, thank you for that, and thanks for joining us on the program today. And thank you for having us, Patricia. Our pleasure. Really thank appreciate you. it. Good All morning to you. Bye-bye. Fiacra Hensi, Chief Executive of the National Community Care Network, and they represent the not-for-profit care organisations that provide home care in the community. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Going to Kinsale Garda Station, where I'm joined by Detective Garda Lisa Harrington, uh, for this week's uh, Garda File. Uh, good morning to Lisa. Good morning, Patricia. And um, we start with some crimes. Uh, firstly, a burglary in Castletown Bear. That's correct. That was a burglary and also an unauthorised taking of a BMW in Castletown Bear. So this occurred on the 22nd of May, which was Sunday morning. A Sunday morning, the 22nd, between 1.30am and 7.30am. So in this case, the house was broken into. The keys of the car were obviously recovered and the car was taken from the house. So the car that was stolen is a relatively distinctive, um, it's a grey saloon BMW 730. Um, and I suppose just to update, the Guardi have in fact recovered that stolen vehicle, but would still welcome any information that people would have on the incident. Okay. So like I, like I said, it did occur between 1.30 and around 9am. So overnight, so, so overnight. it was overnight. Yeah. But kind of, there's a, kind of a lesson to be learned there where we leave our keys in the house? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that the keys are, um, a lot of people have a habit of having them inside the door on a window ledge or they have like a hanging device. Yeah. That that is not a good place. It's the first place people will check. I suppose also to mention, um, the house in this case was left unlocked, which allowing very easy access. Just a reminder that no matter what part of the county or the country I guess you're in, that um, your door should always be checked and locked yeah. while in or out of the home. Yeah, you would think an area like Castletown Bear to be safe to leave the door unlocked, but unfortunately no, not. No, unfortunately not. Okay, staying in the Bear area, moving to Alihees, and a caravan was stolen. That's right, another investigation um, by the Gardaí there in Castletown Bear. So this caravan was taken from um, the Alihees area on the 9th of May between a very small um, time period here, half four and 5 p.m., so um, it's believed the offenders in this case possibly drove into a field, hitched up the caravan and they left. Now, it's possible they were travelling in a blue van. So Gardaí would ask if anyone had noticed um, the blue van, any blue van towing a caravan or noticed anything unusual in that area on Monday the 9th of May 
and that they would contact him there in Castletown Bergarda Station. Now we spoke last week with Sergeant John Kelly in Formoy and he was warning about home heating oil because of the cost of home heating oil going Absolutely. up and the people need to be careful. You've got two separate in- incidents to report. That's correct, yeah. Same date, same area, so no doubt related. So it was two separate thefts and that's being investigated <coughs> Excuse me, by Gardaí at Skull. So um, the first was the theft of home heating oil from a tank at a house and the second was theft of agricultural diesel which was taken from a tank located in a yard. So between the 20th and 24th of May, which is just this week gone, the weekend up until Tuesday. So if anybody in the Golden area would have any information which may be of assistance, if they notice anything unusual, suspicious cars or people, you know, in a country area, um, people would notice things just to contact Skullgard Station or Bantry if they have anything on that. And okay. And people need to keep an eye out for neighbours and friends going forward because unfortunately I think we, we are going, it's like liquid gold at the moment. Yeah, oil, yeah. But we're going to see more and, of it. And I think that that kind of, the crime in terms of theft of oil and stuff, it, it does occur, it seems to be occurring all year round. Yeah. You know, so just try and have your tanks as inaccessible to criminals. You know, I'd always say to, you know, consider installing sensor lights on areas where tanks are, like lights will not only warn you yourself of intruders on a property, but it's also a great deterrent. I mean, no criminals want any sort of spotlight on them. Mm. And I know I've mentioned this before as well, There's, there is a device, it's kind of a level gauge, gauge, and it has an audible alarm, and this will warn if oil levels drop suddenly or below a certain point. So this would, have, again, I suppose, if you had a large delivery of oil, you would be alerted if the oil was kind of dropping low. Yeah, and I know with the cost of oil at the moment, there's very few people filling their tanks, which isn't a bad idea. Not a bad idea, no. Don't, don't fill up because if, God forbid, something yeah. happens, at least they won't Small, get it. Smaller and kind of more yeah, often is a that's good idea. It. That's it. Okay, now there's, you want to discuss a burglary that happened at a holiday home and then tie that in with what we can all do, words of advice, yeah. how we can stop our homes being burgled. Yeah, so this was a Rustan Skibbereen on 17th of May, 20, 17th of May this month, um, so the incident occurred um, between 4.20 and 4.45 p.m., another small time period, and that was Tuesday, May 17, which was last Tuesday. So um, this was an unoccupied holiday house that was broken into. And I guess Gardaí are satisfied, the investigating Gardaí are satisfied someone did attempt to break into the house. And I suppose given that short time period, someone may have spotted something or someone suspicious in that area. Um, and again, the time there was 4.20 to 4.45 and Gardia Skibbereen would welcome any calls or information the public would have on that incident. And I suppose moving on there, I suppose that, that was a holiday home. Um, and I suppose like many other holiday homes, they do remain unoccupied for a lot of the time. Now, this house in particular was fitted with a monitored, monitored alarm, which meant the homeowner and Gardia were notified of the break-in and very shortly after it occurred. So an alarm is an excellent option for people who I suppose don't have the option of keeping a close eye on a property. But I suppose for people who have holiday homes, mobile homes, and the option of alarm isn't there, you know that they should try and visit their homes as regularly as they can. And if you can't do that, you know, nominate somebody, a trusted friend or neighbour in that area that they can visit the home to make sure it's secure. You know, to visit, um, to check the building for damage or signs of break-ins, checking your windows and doors are secure. Um, and just to be aware, like a build-up of letters and hall and porches, you know, that would show the house was vacant just to remove them. Okay, and uh, any suspicious activity by others, as you say, report to, to the local guardian. Now, fraud, Lisa, unfortunately, there isn't an area of the country mm-hmm. that guard the stations are not getting reports of fraud. That's correct, yeah. I suppose despite the constant warnings, um, 
unfortunately, many, many people are still becoming victim to scams and these crimes. And very often, like financial, like large amounts of money are being taken. Now, I suppose the most common types of fraud we are receiving reports of comes through email fraud or phone fraud, which we would know as phishing or phishing with the VERP, but um, it's email fraud or phone fraud, which will involve criminals making contact by email or phone, um, either pretending to be a bank. So over the phone, it can be your bank, utility company or a computer company, the likes of these. Um, so they would have, uh, Amazon is actually another one that seems to be quite, be reported quite often. So bearing in mind the scammers are very convincing and they're professional, they will make you believe they're reputable. And during the conversations, they will normally try and get you to give out personal information, be it banking information or so on. Um, and normally, they will convince you to make some type of a money transfer. Transfer, Or more often than not, they will inform you that you're entitled to a refund and then they will obtain your details to process the refund. And the same thing goes with the emails. Now, the advice, and I, I'm sure it's mentioned all the time, people are hearing about it, it's just, it can't be understated, the crime, the provincial advice would be not to open any solicited emails. You know, always say no to unsolicited callers or texters seeking information. You know, private information, if people are asking for your name, date of birth, certainly bank account information, you know. And never to click on links or email or links or attachments which are contained in emails. Um, and just to be wary that the person calling you may have information on you, so don't trust them just because they might have your name or something, some small personal information. You know, if you believe it, the email is from a genuine source, you can verify it. You know, I'd say be wary. Sometimes these people can be quite pushy. They would request you to do things kind of straight away and just to be very vigilant and not to be pressured. And I suppose there's two things I do want to mention, which we have seen kind of an increase in, is victims being contacted over the phone and being requested to download apps onto their mobile phone. Um, when asked to do so by cyber criminals. So by doing this and downloading the app, it is allowing the criminal on the other end of the line to access their device. So allowing criminals to, I suppose, essentially use their phones, including their online banking. And like I mentioned already, um, a particular, particular popular one it was Amazon. People are being contacted by Amazon or people purporting to be from Amazon offering refunds. So just be very aware it's likely a scam if you are having to download an app on your phone to facilitate any type of refund. And there's one other I think that we should probably mention as well was where there was um, there's an increase in people reporting where they have received a WhatsApp message or Facebook or inter Instagram message which appears to be coming from a legitimate account of a friend or relation or a friend of yours on your on the social media site. And it will look as if it's a genuine message from the person Normally, the contact will go along the lines of, you know, they will be looking for help, that they have lost their phone, and a request will be made for money or, in our, or to click on a link. So people just do need to be aware that these scams are definitely on the rise. Um, and I suppose if you do receive a message from a friend or, or someone looking for help on, on a, a message or social media, you can ring them and confirm, you know, ring them and confirm their account hasn't been hacked. You know, if they're contacting you via, via social media and they're saying they've lost their phone, there are a number of options available if someone has lost their phone. And of course, they can attend their nearest guard station and ask for help. OK, and very briefly, what, what do you suggest people look out for how we identify scams? Um, I would say, you know, any unsolicited contact from a company out of the blue, you know, if they're ringing you to process a refund, that would be an alarm bell. Uh, all, I always say a deal that seems too good to be true. Anyone asking you to share personal details, 
Um, and again, if you're being pressurized to respond quickly or transfer money, and also be very, very wary if it's um, an unusual method, you know, through a transfer, an online transfer and not a bank account. OK, good words of advice. I know, I and I've been doing this for ages, I will never take a call from somebody who's not in my contacts. Absolutely. And if it's somebody trying to, genuinely trying to contact me, they leave a message Absolutely. and then and then I can call them back. And I, and I really think that, that, and I know it's frustrating for people and I know it's frustrating for us when we're trying to contact people here at the radio station. Yeah. Uh, but we just leave a message and then the person uh, calls us That's back. That's exactly and it. The, and the final piece, and, and we say this every time we talk about scams, people People get very embarrassed when they get caught out by a scam and think, God, how could I have been that stupid? Please do not feel stupid. These scam artists are really good at what they do. They're professionals. Yeah. Yeah. Please contact your guard the station if you have been a victim of fraud. Yeah, and I would just say, like, sometimes the sooner the matter is reported to us. I mean, we're getting these reports all the time. Um, Scammers are so professional. the sooner the matter is reported and depending on the manner of the scam or the payment made, there are some options and a possibility of getting some money back. And especially, you know, if you don't want to come to the guard station, certainly go to the bank and see if they can carry out chargeback requests. Yeah. OK, listen, good advice as always, Lisa. Thank you for that. Have a Thank lovely you. week. Thank you. And Bye-bye. thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Detective Garda Lisa Harrington, who's based at Kinsale Garda Station. And somebody said, I switched over to gas because my oil was stolen one day while I just went into town to do some uh, shopping. How easy it can be taken. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. We've got news at 12 midday on the way. A reminder to you that that it's Thursday. So Jane Pickett, our resident vet, joins us. If you've got a pet question, you can get the questions into us now, either to John Paul or you can text our WhatsApp. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And... As you've probably been hearing, the first case of monkeypox has been detected on the island. We knew it was going to happen. It has been recorded in Northern Ireland. Uh, Health officials in Northern Ireland are expected to hold a briefing later on today. Now, earlier today, the European Union's disease agency said the number now of confirmed cases of monkeypox worldwide has reached 219. Now, that's 219 cases outside of the countries where it is already endemic. They're not obviously looking at those countries. This is where the monkeypox has spread to more than a dozen countries now where monkeypox would be unusual have uh, confirmed at least one case. That's according to the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC. Wales confirmed their first case also uh, this morning of monkeypox. And this is the first time the chains of transmissions are reported in Europe without any known links to West or Central Africa. And that's important because in Western Central Africa, the the disease is endemic. So they're obviously not counting cases from there. But up to now, any cases of monkeypox that had been reported had to do with somebody who had either travelled or had been visited by somebody from West or Central Africa. But the cases now that are being reported, there is absolutely no link to West or Central Africa. Most of the cases to date have been detected in young men in the UK, where monkeypox would be a very unusual disease was first detected in early May and they currently, the UK currently has 
the largest bulk of confirmed cases started in early May with their first couple of cases and uh, as of today 71 cases are recorded in the UK. Spain is the next country with the highest cases in Europe 51, Portugal of 37 and then moving outside Canada or outside of Europe, Canada have reported 15 cases and the United States of America have reported nine cases of uh, monkeypox. But the total number of cases reported up to yesterday have increased fivefold since the first count was taken on the 20th of May and they took a count yesterday on the 25th. So in five days, the numbers have gone fivefold. Uh, Contagion risk, we're told, is low. Uh, That's what the ECDC said earlier in the week, but they are warning that people who have multiple sexual partners, regardless of sexual orientation, they are the ones that are most at risk. Now, for the people that have come forward and are being identified and diagnosed with monkeypox, generally the disease is mild. And monkeypox, it's a less severe disease compared to its cousin. It's a cousin of smallpox. And God knows we know from history, we know how serious smallpox uh, was and it is endemic in 11 countries in West and Central Africa they get a little bit like when we get uh, outbreaks of chickenpox monkeypox in West and Central Africa is quite common but it's usually contained there it's what they're worried about now is the fact that it's moved out of West and Central Africa how does it spread it spreads by a bite or direct contact with an infected animal's blood uh, meat or bodily fluids and initial symptoms include a high fever before quickly developing into this uh, rash and people infected with it also get a chicken pox like rash and it generally speaking starts on the hands and face and but then it can move to other parts of the body if you google any pictures of it it can really now obviously the pictures they're putting up online are very severe cases uh, of it but it can look like a really really nasty, nasty disease. I mean, anyone who's ever got chicken box will tell you how uncomfortable and itchy that, that can be. It's kind of a worse version of uh, chicken pox. And I was chatting to somebody the other day, we were talking about it and we were saying, I wonder, does it leave marks? And I imagine it does because there's lots of people would have had chicken pox as children and would be able to point to little marks in their body, little pock marks is that what you call it that were left behind from chicken pox because remember the big one if you were children and you got chicken pox the whole idea was not to scratch them because if you scratched it the idea was you would be left with some kind of a scarring or a pox mark so I'm assuming the same thing will, would happen with monkey pox if you scratched it and it would end up leaving a scar similar to uh, chicken pox and if you were unlucky enough to be diagnosed with it there is no treatment available very same as chicken pox no treatment available for that uh, but the symptoms generally clear up after two to four weeks it does seem to last longer than chicken pox does and I'm assuming calamine lotion wasn't that what we always used to use on a chicken pox so I take it it's just to try to contain the uh, itch but the World Health Organisation while they're saying look this is an emerging disease outside of um, Africa they're saying that the monkeypox is a containable situation they're just there's more warnings about it I suppose there's more warnings about it if people develop it to try to contain it when it when it does happen for people to go into quarantine I mean most countries where they have outbreaks now are saying that if you get it you have to isolate for three weeks and that's just to stop the spread of uh, it and countries will worry 
well, this monkeypox isn't going to kill anyone, uh, but, but countries will worry that if there was mass outbreaks of monkeypox and people had to go into isolation for three weeks, you could imagine if it got into a workplace and for whatever reason it spread around the workplace and they, then they had to close down because all of their workers were home isolating with monkeypox. So I'm assuming that that's a big fear from an economic point of view, but that's just to confirm that we have now had the first case of uh, monkeypox on our island confirmed in Northern Ireland uh, with more on that later today 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls you can text our WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing community and business supports all across the county See corkcoco.ie Kildallery Community Development they're holding their weekly lotto draw that's going to be held this afternoon at four o'clock. The jackpot this week is €3,600. The Sacred Heart Parish Centre on the Western Road, they will open today to accept donations of plants, bric-a-brac, etc. It's for their sale this coming weekend and the sale will happen on Saturday and Sunday. But open today if you've got any items to donate. The Johallow Vintage Club uh, look out for the large display of vintage cars which will be at the Mallow Home and Garden Festival. Johallow Vintage Club have organised the display along with a fundraising drive for motor neuron disease and your support will be much appreciated if you're going to the Garden Festival this weekend. And Mallow's various voices will be performing along with some glorious local talent in St Mary's Church, Donnerail, tomorrow night, Friday at half past seven. Tickets are available by contacting Art for the Heart or Great Artitude on Facebook or you can visit Great Artitude at Main Street in Donnerail. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. You can stop texting us on our John competition before the machine decides to blow up in front of me I played two Elton John tracks out of the news at 12 and a massive reaction again William Barrett in Coachford it is your lucky day William good afternoon to you Hello how's it going How are you? Good very good now And you are you an Elton John fan? I am of course Are you you, you, so you would have no problem would you be free on the 16th of June to the 18th of June to go to Liverpool for us? And then back, and when you come back, go off to see uh, Elton John again in Porky Cueve. And if you are lucky enough to come out of the hat on the day that we make the draw, William, who would you bring with you? I'd say the mother will have to come. (laughs) (laughs) And she's a very good son now. (laughs) And is she an Elton John fan? She is. She actually got me to text in. Oh, did she? (laughs) (laughs) And and you've, you've obviously grown up in a household then with an Elton John fan. Oh, yeah, definitely. Ah, yes, and I wonder you know, you'll know all the songs. Uh, well, listen, you're one step closer to bringing your mammy to Liverpool and um, twice to see Elton John. So well done and congratulations. Lovely. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. William Barrett in uh, Coachford becoming our qualifier on the programme today to see Elton John uh, twice. I can tell you there are two more opportunities today on some of the programmes going forward where two, I just can't tell you what time they're going to be played at, but twice, another two times, we will play two more Elton John uh, songs. And when you hear it, do exactly what William did there. Text or WhatsApp in. 
your name and address and then we randomly select a winner and the or not a winner a qualifier and that person then will go forward for the draw so congratulations William Barrett in Coachford experience Elton John twice with Blackpool Shopping District no gimmicks no notions no paid parking just shopping it is what they do uh, best. 0818103103 and hopefully William and his mammy have their passports ready uh, in case they do win because you're going to need, uh, well, do you need a passport to go to Liverpool? Depends on the airline I suppose more than anything. Passport delays we have been talking about it and touching on it all this week and indeed last week uh, as well and it seems that long delays with the issuing of passports was the subject of sustained criticism, according to newspaper reports, from Fine Gael TDs and senators. Now, this was part of their private party members meeting uh, yesterday. And seemingly, some of the contributions from some of our elected representatives were described as vicious by one participant. By all accounts, who got really annoyed was the veteran TDs Michael Ring and Bernard Durkham. They're said to have had very strong words over the delays with passports and Michael Ring's contribution was described as wicked by another source and actually speaking after the meeting according to the Independent today Michael Ring said the department is going out all over the world opening up embassies in countries that we've never even heard of and they won't give passports to their own people and that's a real dig at the Department of Foreign Affairs and obviously the Foreign Affairs Minister is Simon Coveney and over recent weeks because there has been so much criticism about the passports he has he and he's faced really he in his department certainly faced the brunt of the uh, criticism. Now it seems he wasn't at the meeting in Leinster House. Now there was a reason for it. He was in Estonia. That's the bilateral meetings that are going on about Brexit. But the Tánaiste Talia Varadkar, he appeared to join in in the criticism of the situation. He told colleagues that if 40% of passport application forms have been filled out improperly, and they're the figures that came from the Department of Foreign Affairs earlier on this week, then Leo Varadkar has pointed out that if that's the department admitting that, that 40% are filling out the forms wrongly, he says, surely then there's an issue with the forms, not with the applicants, if that many people are getting it wrong. And Fine Gael Senator Martin Conway, Conway said the minister, that a Minister of State with sole responsibility for passports, he says now should be appointed and just even leave them in place until the backlog in processing the applications is clear, uh, clear. Do you remember that backlog, backlog is just under 200,000 people that are waiting on a passport Charlie Flanagan, who represents the Leash Offaly constituency, he says that as a former justice minister, he found it very hard to accept the passport office cannot get through to a Garda station to verify details for applications. And this is one of the things we've been pointing out to people to make sure that the Garda station you go to is manned 24-7 because the passport office needs to ring. We only heard yesterday of a case up the country of somebody trying to get a passport for their child, waiting, waiting, waiting. And eventually, they, when they got onto the passport office, they said, oh, when we got onto the Garda station, they've lost the book where they recorded your entry into it. We're sending you back all your items and you have to start all over again. And that's somebody who's due to travel in the coming uh, weeks. Charlie Flanagan made the point that every single guy at the station has a phone. Uh, yet this has been put forward as a reason for delaying in issuing uh, passports. But then the guy at the stations are saying they're swamped with the passport office getting onto them, trying to verify whose name is in the book and whose name isn't in the book. 
Simon Coveney in recent days has obviously come out and has, de- has defended his department and you know he's saying that the issues facing the office um, he says his department has never seen such a surge in demand for passports after the pandemic and he's saying that's one of the reasons why there is such delays and of course the figure that he gave out earlier this week so far this year half a million passports have been issued and that's eight and that's just in the, not even into the first full five months of this year and that's 80% of what they would have issued for the entire 12 months of last year and you know he says when people are, are renewing their passports they're getting their passport renewed within t- 10 days that's if it's a simple renewal that you do online and he pointed out in many cases people are getting their passports back within 48 hours and that's been backed up by so many listeners who've contacted us saying the process of a simple renewal is fine but it's the first time passports that are causing the huge huge problems and there's so many people applying for a first time passport that that's what's putting the pressure on pressure on the system and of course you know so much of that is to do with the fact that you know people didn't need passports over the last few years because they weren't going anywhere and now suddenly they're looking looking for them and also is to do with the fact that the passport office was shut during uh, COVID because I know some many people are arguing saying why did the passport office shut down that surely they could have, even with COVID restrictions, have kept working and kept producing passports so that they wouldn't end up with this almost a funnel effect now of people all rushing forward to either renew passports or to get new passports. And what we've been talking about all this week, and it's always been our tip when anybody contacts us, saying having a problem with the passport, we always say to them, who's your local TD? Get on to your local TD. Because all of Aractus members, they have a dedicated line in which they can contact the passport office because we heard yesterday of a member of the public who made 125 phone calls in one day before she managed to get through to the passport office but the Oireachtas members have this dedicated line so it's easier for them or for their staff should I say to get through to sort out to say to the passport office can you look into such and such a passport uh, for me and we know that Oireachtas members are allowed so many calls I thought it was queries per day but it seems it's queries per week and it seems now I don't know if this came directly from Simon Coveney or not but obviously the passport office now are getting inundated with Oireachtas members contacting them on their dedicated line that they decided they were going to put a cap and they were going to reduce the number of queries an Oireachtas member could make to 15 applications a week well seemingly there was uproar by backbench TDs and I'd say not even backbench TDs I'd say ministers as well and it has actually had to force Simon Coveney to up that cap from 15 to 20 in a bid according to Daniel McConnell in today's Irish Examiner in a bid to calm the storm. Many TDs has says that such a cap is less than half the number of queries they're getting every week from their voters and there's a really good piece written by Dan- Daniel McConnell in today's examiner you know where he talks about that a lot of TDs get re-elected on the basis that they got somebody's passport sorted out and he writes in the paper speaking about the late about the former Donegal uh, TD Pat the Cope Gallagher he used to be have so many passport applications coming from people in Donegal that it, and then he would go over to the passport office with all the applications and then he might wait around to pick them up and he'd be bringing them all back to Donegal and he'd either bring them home with him directly or he'd post them that at one stage he was known as Pat the Cope's post office 
because it was over and back to the post office uh, so much. So there's even a limit now on the number of queries that can come in from Oireachtas members and that certainly is not going to help the countless number of people who are getting on to their Oireachtas members to try to get their passports sorted out. And I do say to people when you are contacting a local TD who have that avenue open to them, only do it if your passport is an emergency. You know, we know of people whose holidays are coming up or maybe they need to travel for an emergency. But if you're just getting a passport and there's no urgency on when the passport comes, then go through the normal channels and just have patience. 0818-103-103. John Paul taking your calls. We're looking for your pet questions now, please, for Jane Pickett, our resident vet. You can text or WhatsApp a pet question to us to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. And Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mystery Veterinary Group, joining me this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you are very welcome to the programme. And I promised uh, a listener that I would talk about this on the programme today. It's to do with pugs, those particular breed of dogs. Uh, Victoria was telling me that she had a King Charles dog, eight years of age, who sadly had to be put to sleep before Christmas. She now thinks she's ready to get a new dog. She said she'd done, she's done all her grieving and it's taken her time. She has an offer of a pug. But a friend of hers was saying, be very careful with pugs because they come with higher health risks. So Victoria contacted me to say, would you ever ask Jane to discuss pugs and do they come with higher health risks than other dogs? Okay, so this is a really interesting um, topic and it's one that I suppose vets, it's, it's one we encounter every day. So we all know kind of these little flat-faced breeds. So they're called brachycephalics is the official term. So it would encompass things like pug, uh, French bulldogs, bulldogs, things like that. So they have a, a shorter snout than normal. Now, they are great little dogs with beautiful little personalities. However, they have a plethora of health issues associated with that short nose. So it is really a... a, a I, my advice would be to take a, a real kind of step back and caution before you proceed with taking on a, a flat faced dog. Although they are beautiful little dogs personality wise, a lot of the breeding at the moment, and that's not, let's say, all breeding um, of these breeds is it kind of selects for, let's say, the flatter face as being the breed standard in most cases, as far as I'm aware. Now, with that comes along problems with breathing. Um, so a lot of these breeds can have problems um, with, let's say, getting enough air and oxygen in, particularly when they're exercising or in hot weather and they can really struggle. Some of them will snort and snore quite a lot. And that's because their airway is relatively not big enough for the size of their body, essentially. And the conformation, so the shape of the front of their nose is is not, let's say, long enough and wide enough to permit normal airflow. So that gives them lots of problems with exercising and tolerating heat. And in many cases, being able to breathe normally in normal circumstances, depending on how severe the issues are. You can also have some problems with their eyes as well. A lot 
these flat-faced breeds have kind of quite bulgy bug yeah. eyes, which gives them that cute kind of baby-like appearance. But they can be very, very prone to having problems, such as very, very prone to scratches on the front of their eyes, such as eye ulcers, for example, oh. or even problems with just how well, how well their eye is contained within their head. So they have a plethora of health issues at the moment, unfortunately. So it's something I would exercise extreme caution before going down that route, because yeah. there are a number of issues. With yeah, she's she's right to be concerned, and it, it, they've become one of those sort of more popular dogs, haven't they? The, the little pugs—they've almost become like the little designer dog. Exactly. In the last kind of three or four years, particularly, I know I know most practices around the country have seen a big upsurge in these breeds. And a lot of them, it is, I suppose, it's kind of the, the celebrity dog is yeah. part of it. Um, and, and that has had a certain amount of influence on things, which obviously when they come along with a lot of health issues, it's concerning um, because we obviously want all of our dogs to be able to live a happy, comfortable and healthy life. And if we're kind of actively encouraging breeding of these breeds that have kind of known health issues that do cause them to struggle in their day to day lives, then we, I suppose we just need to kind of think about our decision making as to what we want to promote longer term for, for the dogs all over the country. Yeah, well we want said. them to be fit, healthy, happy and comfortable. Well said. OK, good advice there for Victoria. I would suggest a mongrel for you, uh, Victoria, and uh uh, rehome, go and go and t- take yes. a rehomed dog. Okay, now Annie was on to us. This is to do with her ten-year-old Labrador who has suddenly gone off his dog food. There was a particular bl- brand that he liked. It was either contained beef or chicken, and, and no problem at all. There were tinned tinned food, and away he went. He w- would also have dry nuts, but she said the dry nuts would be more like a snack. All of a sudden, he's gone off the tinned dog food. Now, Annie said what he's surviving on at the moment is scraps that she would have from, you know, their own table from dinner and uh, breakfast and she's also been giving him things like cooked chicken and she's wondering is it okay is that enough for him to survive on and why would he suddenly have gone off from the particular brand of food that he always liked Okay, so if it's a particular brand of food that he always liked and the formulation hasn't changed and he's just decided all of a sudden that's not for me, then I would say that that's a, a really good signal to you that something's up so any change, even a, just a change of kind of refusing certain foods and needing to kind of have the more enticing foods like the human food, the chicken, the other snacks to get them to have an appetite is a big signal that your pet may have a declining appetite. And to be honest with you, there's a hundred and one different reasons that that can occur. And the best thing that you could do at this stage is visit your vet. I would visit your vet, let them know that there's been a, a you know, kind of a quite a sudden and dramatic change in their eating habits. And it may be that they need to do a full physical exam. If your pet is a little bit older, they might need to do some ancillary tests like blood tests and urine analysis just to screen for background issues. Now, there's a small chance it could be that your dog has just suddenly become very picky. But if they've long been kind of on that food, very settled and the formulation hasn't changed, it's quite likely that it might be an early warning system for something being up. And I'd say one thing I'd say is don't be up to go to your vet. It's always better that if there is something up in the background, the earlier we know, because for many, many diseases, the earlier we catch them or the earlier we catch an issue, sometimes we can solve it entirely. Or if not, it's something that usually the earlier you institute manage many long term diseases, the better the outcome. So it's always better to be armed with the information. So I know it can be scary to think that there's something might be up with your dog, but it's always better to know, to be able to act on it and help your pet rather than kind of be in the dark a little bit. So I take his signal as a, as a signal to go to the vet. Yeah, and there's so many treatments now, you know, mm-hmm. around. And, and a 10-year-old Labrador, you know, he's got a good few more years of living left to do. 
it hope you know you hear yeah. of all, all all kinds of ages of different sizes of dog generally the smaller dogs tend to live a little bit longer on average but the larger kind of medium to large labradors I, i'd hope he had he'd still have a few years on the clock okay um certainly of, ha- of happy life so okay carmel has been on carmel's been on to some turners cross uh one of her cats I is weeping. She's happy, eating well, running around in great form. It's just every now and again, Carmel notices that the eye is weeping. It's not doing it all of the time, but it's just every now and again. Okay, if it's every now and again, it could be one of two or three things. One is it could be a problem with the actual eye. So it could be kind of a waxing, waning, ongoing eye infection. And sometimes it can just be bad luck and we need treatment just to get rid of the infection. Sometimes it can be underlying things like, for example, ingrown eyelashes or something stuck there. Dogs and cats are very good at sticking their heads into things, getting stu- things stuck just underneath their eyelids where they're nicely hidden from us, but cause kind of continuous irritation for them and can sometimes cause some eye discharge. Other things in a cat that will cause kind of waxing, waning eye discharge is cat flu. So unlike us, when cats get kind of flu-like symptoms, they can sometimes get runny, weepy eyes. Um, And sometimes that can be the only presenting sign. So that's a possibility too. I would say if it's happening and it's coming back kind of repeatedly, even though your cat seems otherwise well in himself, I would visit the vet because you want to make sure that he's not sore, irritated. And the longer we leave these things, sometimes the harder they are to treat. So it's best to best to take him along to your vet. OK, and staying on cats, uh, Timmy in Shanagari, is it OK for cats to eat grass? His five-year-old cat is constantly eating grass at the moment, but it's a new thing. He never did it before. Okay, if it's a new thing, very similar to our dog kind of going abruptly off his food. If this is a new behaviour for your pet and all of a sudden they're doing it all of the time, that's a signal that something might be up in the background. Now, with grass eating, we do know in dogs, sometimes they eat grass. And similarly with, with, with cats, they eat grass when they feel nauseous and want to make themselves sick. In dogs, we know that there's a small amount of evidence to show that sometimes it can actually just behavioural, be behavioural, be a habit, and it's it's entirely harmless. But for cats, generally, if they're chewing on grass, it means they're feeling a little bit not to make themselves sick. So I would say that you want to find out the reason why that's happening. So visit your vet, let them know what's happened. It's an abrupt change in their behaviour, so it always warrants investigation. And they'll take it from there and they'll discuss the options with you as to as to how you proceed from there. Okay. All right. Good advice as always. Listen, thank you for that, Jane. Have a lovely week and we'll chat to you next Thursday. Thank you for chatting. Thanks a million. That is uh, Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. A couple of people commenting on the monkeypox story when I mentioned that we've had our first case on the island of Ireland. It has been reported in Northern Ireland. Uh, Martin says, Patricia, another lockdown monkeypox. What else, in, what else is the world going to throw at us? The world is banjaxed. Are we heading for another lockdown? Uh, there'll be more economic troubles. No, I don't think in any I think that monkeypox is going to be linked to a lockdown but I think Martin what would happen is if if we got a lot of cases it would certainly curtail people's lives in that they're saying the quarantine period is anything up to three weeks so you could be out of work for three weeks and the knock on effect that that could have on uh, businesses would be uh, frightening and other people very much worried about monkeypox and hoping that it doesn't get any worse. And someone else says Patricia it's now been six weeks since the gym in Dunmanway 
runway is closed and it's remained idle all that time. It is utterly ridiculous and it is demonstrating how poorly our community facilities are run and that's it's been closed because it has to be available for Ukrainian refugees. It's as an emergency centre, isn't it, for Ukrainian refugees? The last time we looked into it and I can sense and understand the frustration of people who regularly used that uh, gym and whatever about if there was people using it and people in there using it as an emergency centre but when it's when it's empty I can sense your frustration that's where I leave you for today thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we'll talk to you tomorrow one for the final one of the week until tomorrow at 10 I'm Patricia Messenger very good afternoon on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice you know who to talk to cmig.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.